Lord, but because I had mentioned to you last week how serious I took the outreaches and uh, that if people did not want to be a part of these outreaches, then they don't need to come back to church. They can go find another one. And how many know if I were to pay you $10 uh, right now to find churches that don't go outreaching and you can start from this church right here, I'll pay you $10 for every one you can find. How many know you could leave here rich today? Seriously, you could just go walk right down the street and just say, excuse me, do you guys go preach on the streets? No, $10. Okay, do you guys go preach on the street? No, $10. You wouldn't have to walk too far, right? Church here, church there. So uh, those other churches are waiting for those who don't want to do outreaches, okay? Now, we know there's others of you. You work, and you're not able to get your time off, and you tried your best. Thank you, and we understand that God has a calling on your life to be there, and and we want you to take that job serious. At the same time, I do want to remind you you of this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke chapter 9 verse 57. And that is God asked us to put him even above our jobs. And so you need to make sure that when that time comes, if the Lord tells you to put him above your job, you need to make that decision. Because otherwise you'll be getting the mark of the beast. And so as a pastor, it is my job to tell you these things. Can I hear an amen? Amen. It's my job to tell you these things. So you might have said, I asked my job and they didn't let me off. My question to you would be, did you ask 90 days in advance? Did you ask 60 days in advance? Did you ask 30 days in advance? Those of you who said, I cannot afford to take off time from work, did you ask the Lord to bless you with extra shifts and resources during the last 90 days to be able to afford to take off time? Others of you who said your health was not good, did you go and start exercising and start preparing and talk to your doctor for times that you could go out and be on the streets? Your obesity or your diabetes or whatever health issue you have is not an excuse to stop serving Jesus. Now, this does not mean that I don't love you or that I'm not being kind to you. This is not spiritual abuse, and I'll challenge any counselor who thinks it is to a public debate on whether or not me teaching God's commands is spiritual abuse. And I promise you, they'll get wrecked by the scriptures. Spiritual abuse comes from a narcissistic leader that doesn't care for your well-being, but only for your obedience and allegiance to their cause. That has nothing to do with my motive. I went out by myself before we had a church. I'll go by myself again as a pastor a hundred times. That has nothing to do with it. Your obedience to me means nothing. I could be just as happy moving to another state, preaching there, and then Chicago continuing Lollapalooza without me, and it being much bigger than what I would do in another state, and it would not affect me in the least. In other words, as an early man in my ministry, God had to break off the love of numbers for me. Most narcissists love numbers. They do whatever it takes to keep numbers around. The pastors who pastor these churches do not get into the personal issues of their people because by doing that, they'll uncover more issues. They just let sleeping dogs lie. I am the exact opposite. What I am is a strong leader. What I am is a non-intimidated leader, and I speak to you the very words of Jesus, and most people are not friends of Jesus. Let me just be very clear with you. Most of you, when you meet pastors, you meet people who are probably the most insecure person you have ever met. Most pastors are more insecure than you. 70% are dealing with depression. These are not my stats. These are the stats and facts. They've been out there. I just put it on a blog post. You can go and research them. John Maxwell, a pastor, two pastors have been presenting these stats and facts for years. In my doctoral program, learning spiritual formation, I can summarize it this way. 
This was their lessons to me in doctoral level learning of spiritual formation as a minister. Don't kill yourself and don't quit in the ministry. 10% of ministers only make it to 65. I've been in ministry by God's grace for 25 years. That's why I have so much gray hair at 45. Half kid. Pastor joke there. You don't have to like those. I'll just say them every now and then. They make me feel more like a pastor. 25 years I've been in ministry. Most pastors do not know Jesus. Most of them are backslidden. They're depressed. And they don't understand how Jesus talks. How do I know this? Because I talk to them all the time. When I was in seminary, I was debating a passage with another pastor of a well-known church, and I cannot mention it because the discussion boards are private, and I keep my word. They are a part of one of the top largest churches in America. We debated a passage over 1 Corinthians 5, excommunication, and they did not believe it was relative to the modern church. Therefore, what that tells me is they read more about other pastors and what big churches are doing in mega messes, I mean mega churches, than they are reading from the Scripture. I have been reading this Bible for 27 years. The reason why you hear me use the word stupid, foolish, idiotic, ignoramus, and if I want to apply it to culture, oompa loompa, is because my favorite book of the Old Testament is the book of Proverbs. Do a word search on the word fool in the book of Proverbs. Like Mr. T, I pity the fool. The reason why you hear me speak so much about hell, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. And not only that, the reason why you hear continual threats of hell, which we would call promises, is because that's how Jesus spoke. Even in Jesus' most loving verse, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He's very serious about what he's doing. Jesus spoke this way. Jesus called people names. Sometimes people get upset with me that I call people names. Jesus called people names. He called them foxes, a political leader. He called his disciples Satan. That's a discussion of whether or not he was Satan uh, in possession of, uh, of Satan himself, so he's possessed by Satan, or if he's acting like Satan. Either way, he looks at a man that he loves, and he calls out the name Satan. He called Jewish people fools, whitewashed tombs. He called a woman a dog. He called people snakes and vipers. Some preachers like to cuss now and use that as their way to do it. That's idiotic. Are you listening to me? Jesus was not cursing for the sake of being a shock jock. Jesus was using the language to open their mind to their behavior and what it looked like. Other people say that in our church, when we require discipleship, that it makes them feel cultish. I want to be very honest with you. There is no good church that will not be called a cult. Jesus was called a cult, the sect, a, a way that was looked at down upon by the Jewish leaders. I study cults and I reach out to cults. A cult has a false doctrine or a false belief or a false practice. It is not whether or not they are dedicated to something. You should be more dedicated to what you're doing here than someone who straps on a bomb and says, Allah Akbar, and flies into a plane. But the world, who does not recognize religious dedication, thinks you're in a cult. That's why they're right. That's why they're right to call out the scriptures that most evangelicals ignore and to say, do you really believe this? There is a Muslim mocking us going around town reading the parts of the Bible that most Christians don't like, and then he says, don't you dislike the Quran?" And then the Christian goes, yeah, that's crazy. And he goes, that's from your Bible. 
Because most Christians don't even know it's in their Bible for women to remain silent. When Paul was done with the issues of women in the church, he told them to be quiet and ask questions at home. Does that sound like a cult to you? Women, you can't even talk anymore? But Paul used his authority. We ordain women pastors in this church because we don't believe that is the culture of the women in this church. But at any time, if I thought women were out of order and I said, be quiet, keep your peace, only talk to your husbands at home, would you do it? Paul expected his church to do it. He said, wear a head covering. He said, men don't have long hair. Do you not know that's in your Bible? You look at me like I'm crazy. Read your Bible. It's church. That's the way they, if you went into Paul's church as a woman in Ephesus or in Corinthians, women, you would not be allowed to talk. Are you going to have an attitude with Paul? He would say, listen, we don't talk in this church if you're a woman. Sit down, be quiet. We're done with the prostitutes coming from their false religions where they were prostitute, false witches and prophets, prostitutes who were prophets. Say that a few times. And he said, they're causing confusion in our services. So I'm asking all women to be silent. Are you willing to be silent if God said to be silent in the church? Women, I'm asking you a question. And it's funny because we have women pastors, and some of the ones that are most offended by women pastors are women. And I go, let's just take it all the way. How about you shut up and stop talking to me? Now they get upset. How dare you tell me to shut up and stop talking to you? The Bible says to do it. If you're going to come to me as a woman, bringing to me a passage of Scripture that says women should not talk in the church, and then you're upset with me because I ordain leaders, I'm going to have you stop talking in the church. Live by what you believe. Get your husband to make your point to me about we not ordaining women in the church. Get your husband, woman. And if you don't have a husband, get your father. This is biblical culture. The Bible also talks about shame. Many people say that we should not feel ashamed. The Bible talks about shame continually. The Bible is a shame culture. If you did things against the word of God in the biblical culture, you would be shamed. Do you guys understand that? We are part of a church culture now where anything goes, and so we say things like everybody is welcome. And then the church gets shot up. Was the shooter welcome to shoot up everybody? And then people molest the children. Is the molester welcome to molest whoever they want? And then they hold up signs to sinners and say, welcome home. Sinners, this is not your home. This is a holy congregation belonging to the Lord. We are the saints of God. This is the home of Jesus Christ and his church. And then they think we're Westboro Baptists or something redonkulous like that because that's all they know that, what to compare it to. But this is the church of Jesus Christ. There are rules in the church. There's obedience to leadership in the church. If you don't like this church, go to another church and follow them. But we in this church are soul winners. We are an outreach church. We are not ashamed of our preachers on the streets. When I came out yesterday to the third day of the outreach, I was tired. The bus ride there was long. We were in traffic traveling 11 miles. It took us over an hour. I was ready just to go out there and hand out cupcakes and smile and do face painting. That's the level of outreach that I personally was at. I wanted people to smile at me. I just wanted to hand them a hot dog in a bottle of water and say, Jesus loves you. That's how tired I was. I'm being honest with you. When I saw Juan grab the megaphone and go totally ham on it for Jesus, I woke up really quick. I said, oh, we're not slowing down today. I'm glad somebody got fired up in the Holy Ghost. 
please put up that live feed of Juan grabbing it because maybe it started at that point or whatever point it started. I was like, I'm here now. Because if I'm going to die for Jesus, I better be ready to defend what he's saying right now. Because he was going off a mile a minute and everybody in that congregation on the streets was going to hell and needed Jesus. God have mercy if you were a backslider out there looking for a hug from a Christian to feel some warmth. You were, not, you were not feeling at that moment the warmth of the good hug. You were feeling what Proverbs says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. Juan was loving you. He was moving so fast, I thought they were going to jump him because he kept moving like this, and then somebody would scream at him this way, and then he would move like this. I said, brother, let me get your back. Can you please stand still? <laughs> so I tried to put my hand on his shoulder just so I could see where the slap was coming from. Where the spit we were going to get. Now, thank God we were protected out there. I'm not afraid to die for Jesus. Your relatives who are in heaven right now are not caring about what you're doing on earth. They don't care that they missed your wedding, your baby dedication, or your sweet little graduation. They are looking at the King of Kings saying, holy, holy, holy. They are looking at the angels holding bowls of wrath, and they are waiting for them to come. Heaven is a place right now that is counting down the minutes to the bowls of wrath. My friends, the cloud of witnesses has set their testimony among us. Are you now going to live to a cloud of witnesses or to a cloud of bozos? I said to them when I was preaching to them, most of them don't know that preachers weren't saved at one point. I said to them, if rock and roll concerts can save you, why do the best of those in rock and roll kill themselves? Kurt Cobain, Nirvana lead singer of Soundgarden. These used to be my heroes. I said, if this is what saves a soul, then why are they so lost? The lead singer of Lincoln Park, they commit suicide. And then I said to them, if the rock and roll gives the answer, why are they right now screaming that they're not the answer? Has anyone even heard about the new song by Post Malone and some of these others? They're singing about wanting to die. They're singing about losing themselves. That's one. Would you put it up there a little bit? And let's get a little taste of that this morning you got to unmute so we can hear it. Is the volume able to be turned up on it back there? Is it connected to the sound system? Okay, take your time. When I heard that man preaching like that, I said, oh, we're here now. Do you know who that man is to me? Thank you. Okay, sorry for the beginning because I guess they caught just the last few minutes. There's Adam. He'll be preaching to us in just a moment. I guess we're not going to be able to hear you. Thank you, brothers. Basically what he's saying is repent and believe in Jesus. He's saying the gospel. You know what Juan is to me? Juan is to me, a fruit of the ministry. Someone who once was bisexual and homosexual, who came to the Lord via his brother and now serves Jesus. You know how precious that man's testimony is to me? And to see him doing that is precious. When I think about the church of America today, I think about people who don't want to go preach. They want to go to conferences. They want to be told all the sweet things of the Scripture, but they don't want to understand the great anger that God has towards the world. Go to Luke chapter 14, verse 15, and we'll go to Luke chapter 9 in just a moment. Do you know that part of the call of evangelism comes from the anger of God? 
Most of the time we think of the love of God compelling, and this is precious. Never forget the love of God. But it's also the wrath of God that causes us to be his ambassadors. If anybody's ever seen the 300, you understand what Leonidas said to the messenger. What you say here, you are going to be held responsible for. Our God is a king, and what is said here, every man and woman is going to be held responsible for. When Jesus invited people to the wedding feast, he's inviting them to heaven. But they began to refuse to come. Look at verse 18. But they alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I cannot come. Now listen to what happens here. The servant went back and reported this to the master. Now if you don't see God as the master here, you're missing the entire point. It should be obvious. Then the owner of the house became what? Delightful and smiled and told a joke. He became what? Angry and he ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the towns and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Part of the reason why we're going out right now is because God is angry at sinners for not listening and not coming to the wedding feast. He is now telling us go everywhere so that there will be no excuse. God's righteous judgment will be shown true when we go out and preach the gospel and then it's confirmed on the day of judgment. Did we not go to Lollapalooza and warn them? Did we not go to this place and warn them? Did we not stand on that street corner? My brother and sister, did we not warn them? So God's anger is justified. God will say to those on that day, depart from me for I never knew you. But they had the opportunity to know God. They chose on their own to walk away from God. They chose on their own to go to hell. They chose on their own to do these wicked things. As C.S. Lewis said, hell is locked from the inside. No one is sent to hell who has not sent themselves there first. Oftentimes people talk to me and they don't recognize that I'm quoting the scriptures and they're arguing with me and then they say they're a Christian. It's a fact of the matter that the Bible has a set of commands and duties for a Christian. Turn with me, John 14, 15, please. And may I have a reader up here for some scriptures? Someone that's good at reading that volunteers and can get the mic, please. I want to read through about 10 scriptures with you quickly. It's a good day. Amen. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Let's get her a microphone, please. John 14, 15. Thank you, Sister Sydney. I appreciate you. John 14, 15. They'll be up there. Okay. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask. Oh, it's just 14. Yes. I'll just name the verses. That's okay. Some I'll, I'll say to read on, but read it one more time, please. If you love me, keep my commands. Amen. Go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. First John chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Thank you. First John chapter 3, verse 7. First John chapter 3, verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Amen. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. 
Go to verse 4, please. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for his sins is left. Verse 27, please. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Amen. Just a few more. Go back again to Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 17. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and slave to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19, please. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Amen. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. Repent at my rebuke, then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Verse 24. But since you refuse to listen when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand. 25. Since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke. 26. I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. 27. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps you over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Verse 28. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Verse 29. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. Verse 30. Since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke. Verse 31. They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. 32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. And verse 33. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Amen. Let's give it up for Sydney. You did amazing. Thank you. Now back to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Those scriptures speak for themselves, do they not? There's a warning to the church that doesn't keep the commands of God. There's a group of people that believe the commands of God include the Sabbath, and they use that to smuggle it in. The new covenant is clear that the commands of God do not include the Sabbaths. They do not include the festivals, nor that they do not include diet. But the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, and these commands are to be obeyed. There are some who do not keep the commands of God out of ignorance, and yet they call themselves a Christian, and God is going to bring people to them to explain further Christianity. You can look at this in the book of Acts with Apollos. He only knew so much, but God brought to him Priscilla and Aquila, which is also evidence that women were used in the ministry in other locations because the woman's name is put first, and it says they, plural, brought them to their home, plural, and taught him further the things of God. 
This kind of instruction is supposed to be received humbly and by those who are willing to study the Scripture. As the Bible says, when it was preached to the Bereans, they were much more noble than those in Thessalonica and in the other places that the apostles had been because they searched the Scriptures diligently to see if what Paul was saying to them was true. When people disagree with us, they have the right to do so if they can show in the Scripture what is better or what is a more truth uh, to the matter, what is more true to the matter. But what we see is that we have a culture that doesn't want to debate the Scripture. They want to debate their feelings. They want to discuss what feels good to them, and therefore they don't know Jesus. Most pastors discuss things the same exact way. One of the friends that I was speaking to in ministry, I told him about the expectations that we have in our church in discipleship in these various ways, and he said to me, if I did that in my church, everybody would leave. And I said, and that's a bad thing? He said, well, then who am I going to minister to then? I said, you're going to minister to those who stay and accept the calling of what is being offered to them. When Jesus said to the disciples, if they wanted to follow them, what was the first thing he said to them? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Today you should not follow me because of how I dress, though it shouldn't be a distraction to you. You should not follow me because of my eloquent speech, though once again it shouldn't be a distraction to you. You should not follow me because I have a lot of money or because I have influence. What your choice should be when you're choosing a church and who you're following is are they following Jesus? Then you are to then say to those in your sphere, in your life, are you going to follow me as I follow Jesus? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, please, before we get to the Romans, uh, to the Luke 9 passage, that way we are leaders among the culture. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. If I do not teach you how to put Jesus above your job, your job will have you do things that will go against God at some point, and you can be deceived. I am not saying that if you had to go to your work at this outreach, that you disobeyed God. That is between you and the Lord. But what I am teaching is that you have to, at some point, be able to say to your job, this comes first. Church comes first. If you want your children to become professional athletes, you better talk to that coach and say, church comes first. But God didn't tell you to raise up professional athletes. He told you to raise up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord that when they're old, they would not depart. So at some point, you are going to have to make decisions of priority. In other words, what is the dog and what is the tail? Our culture is used to Christians just bowing down to everything. They are aghast and shocked when you do not bow down to their virtue signaling. We are not under their authority. We are under the authority of God. God is our king. Polycarp, a disciple of John the Apostle, was placed under arrest as an old man for not submitting to Rome. They placed him on trial, and they said, if you renounce Christ, we'll let you live. If you swear your allegiance to Caesar first and then serve another God, we will let you live. In other words, if you just say that there is a God above your God, we'll let you live. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and never has he done me any harm. How can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? I am a Christian. God is looking for a generation that stands on the word of God. Have we come to you with our preferences and convictions and asked you to submit to them? Have I said to you, because I don't drink coffee, you should not drink coffee? 
because I homeschool, you must homeschool? Have we come to you here with just our mere convictions? Because I didn't watch movies for so many years. As a new Christian, you shouldn't watch movies for so many years. Do we meddle into your life and speak God's word as if you do not know how to hear God's word for yourself? Do I tell you who to marry, how to date, how to run your home, husbands? Do I waste our time checking up on you on how much you read your Bible and pray to the point of where now you're doing it for man? Or have I come here as a pastor, set a standard on the word of God and simply ask you to follow me as I follow Christ? Let all the other areas be dealt with between you and the Lord. Accountability and discipleship as you choose to serve him. You want to homeschool, that's fine. You don't want to homeschool, that's fine. You want to drink coffee, that's fine. You want to celebrate Christmas or not celebrate Christmas, that's fine. These are not the things that we preach from this pulpit here. We do not preach the gray areas of Scripture according to a man's own conscience, of his diet, of one day being more sacred than another. Most of you didn't even know that I don't drink caffeine until you heard it from me right now or that I don't celebrate Christmas. Well, every now and then I mention it during Christmas, don't I? Please forgive me. I'm a naughty person sometimes because I don't like sin or anything to do with it. And yet we, as a good church, have to do this today, not because it's a bad day, but because it's a good day. Because now as we move from what was my favorite outreach in 25 years, I don't want you to do it because I'm proud. I want you to do it because of those scriptures. I don't want you to say I manipulated you to serve Jesus here. When my parents saw me first get saved, did anybody tell me to go to Fryman Square and start preaching the gospel at Three Rivers? As a matter of fact, my friends, who I thought were doing it, because I thought all Christians did it, when they came back for Thanksgiving break and I had known them from church, they said, we want you to teach us how to do it. Do you know that by God's grace, I've been teaching experienced people much more older than me how to do it since I've been saved? Within a few months, I taught my friends in Bible college how to do it. Then I went to Bible college, and my dad is a witness. I said to the student that was there, he was a second-year student. I was a first-year student in New Orleans. I said, when do you go to Bourbon Street? When do you go out to the French Quarter? He said, we do not go. I said, take me out there and show me. He showed me one time. From that point on, I went out every Friday and Saturday for the next two years into the Bible college, ordained me as a pastor of outreach, and I led it and received a student ministry award. I'm not boasting but anything in Christ. Are you understanding me? I remember coming out and preaching the gospel on the streets with a man that was much better of a pastor than me, much better of a preacher than me, and I handed him to Mike. He was in his 50s then. He looked at me and he said, I've never done this. Would you show me how? And with the joy of my heart, I said, here's how you do it, pastor. I have never had a bone to pick with someone that was giving their best and just was ignorant. I have a problem with foolishness which is you're not just ignorant, you're being dumb on purpose. I have a problem with a church culture and community that is purposely ignoring the Great Commission, and then they want to stick their filthy hands in our face and tell us to shut up and be quiet. We will not shut up and be quiet. We will preach all the more, and if it brings conviction to them, so be it. If it makes them feel upset, then so be it. But we will not be intimidated by them telling us to stop. We will keep preaching the gospel, and we will keep seeing souls saved. Go back now, please, to Luke chapter 9, verse 57. A man 
was walking around, as they were walking rather, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was very clear that Christianity was going to cost people something. There is going to be a time in the American culture where it will cost you more than your pain right now. And I have to prepare you for that. COVID was but a test of what people want to do with power. And many churches fell for that test, uh, failed that test, and they fell for those lies. What will we do when it's an actual plague? And then now they want to seize power. Has anybody ever watched Star Wars? Has anybody ever watched a dystopian fantasy? <laughs> what do they always do, the emperor? What do they always do? They, they allow these problems to get so big that are real, and then they take power. Anybody ever study world history? How do you think a, a madman like Hitler comes to power? He says, I'm the answer. Look at all of our poverty. It's the Jews' fault. Let's start by killing them. It's the undesirables' fault. We're not as strong as we, we can be. Let's start doing eugenics. If you don't know history, it's going to repeat itself. How do madmen come to power? How do dictators take over? Talk to our friends from Cuba. It wasn't always like that. But they looked at the landowners. They said, they have too much. You, they have too much. Don't you want their land? Don't you want their property? See, they lie, and then they come in and take advantage of that. What are we going to do when it's a real plague? What are we going to do when it's not just Ukraine and Russia, but there's real war? And it's all happening at the same time. Wars, rumors of wars, plagues, pestilences, diseases, persecution, hated by all men, false Christ. The majority of Christians will back down in 30 seconds. They will back down. As they said during the time of the Nazi Holocaust, there was a church that was next to the train station that could hear the people's groans as they were coming by. And the priest said, sing louder. We don't want to hear their groans. The world is mad. That's why they think I'm a madman and so are you. The world has gone mad. The prophet now is looked at the mad, as the madman. But you're not the madman. You're following the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he's given you the truth. Now let me ask you a question. Love Palooza, love pleasure more than you? Some of you are deceived. Read C.S. Lewis on the weight of glory. They actually don't love pleasure as much as a Christian. I love pleasure much more than them. My pleasure is in God, though. See, many of us think, and that's okay, answers are given truthfully here. You'll never be mocked for that. Thank you for some of you who said, yeah, I think they love pleasure more. No, they love worldly pleasure more. But you were made for pleasure. You were made for glory. And the problem is, it's not that they have a love for pleasure. The problem is they don't love pleasure enough. Because if they loved pleasure enough, they would understand that as drunk as they can get, it never satisfies. If they loved pleasure enough and was rating how far they go in pleasure, they would know after all of the sexual perverted things that they boast about and told us about, it still leaves them without pleasure. Jesus said to the psalmist that in his presence is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. You see, I'm still getting high. I'm just getting high on the most high. I haven't come down. They have to reload on that, but I'm drinking water that never thirsts again, where I never thirst again. You see, the pleasure seeker finds that only true everlasting pleasure is found in God. When Jesus was asking this man to give up the pleasure of sleeping on a soft bed, he wasn't saying you won't have pleasure anymore. What he was saying is you're going to have the pleasure of walking with the Son of God as he comes down the shores of Galilee. You will have peace beyond your understanding. You will have joy full of glory. I have watched MTV Cribs a time or two. Shaquille O'Neal's bedroom is worth more than our houses, most of us here. Don't quote me on this, but I believe his bed is worth over $100,000. No matter where that sinner would have slept that day, he wouldn't have had the joy of being next to Jesus. Where would you rather be? In a million-dollar bedroom? With God far from you or sleeping next to Jesus on the side of a hill to hear his heartbeat, to hear his whisper, to see things that no eye has seen. You see, some of us, we want the American dream and Christianity. That may happen for many of us here. I thank God for prosperity. We've had people give a dollar here. We've had people give over $100,000 here. I thank God for both. But listen to me. American Christianity is a deception from the pit of hell. If you have success, have it seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If God makes you the next Chick-fil-A, the next Hobby Lobby, the next billionaire, the next inventor, let him do it as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's why he'll add he'll give you wealth and there'll be no sorrow added to it the next one Jesus says come follow me and the man replied well let me go first go bury my father let me go first bury him if you ask me where I see this in the scenario I see Jesus doing a talk just like I'm doing right now and he could see somebody really into it seeing somebody amen him, seeing somebody appreciate what was happening. And I could see Jesus just like I was with TJ. After TJ heard Adam preach, I said to TJ, hey man, if, if you want a flight to go with him, I'll arrange it. We'll pay for you to TJ to keep going with Adam to the next spot. What an honor it was for Jesus to say to that person that day, out of all the thousands probably that were around him, come follow me. I see the interest. I see your, the spark in your eyes. I see that your soul is open to receive. What an honor that day to be picked. And yet the first thing out of the man's mouth is not something about sin, not something in either covenant that would have been considered a sin. It was a family obligation. More than likely, he was the oldest child. He was responsible. They didn't have the social services we have now. If he doesn't go back and help his family and do all these things, mother might die. Children might die. And yet Jesus says to him, within the next moment, let the dead bury their own dead. And you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See, most pastors don't know that, Jesus. Most pastors make places for your flesh to hide. 
If 27 years ago Jesus put my flesh on the cross, you think I'm going to let yours run wild? You think I'm going to put mine on the cross? Take out earrings when it's not a sin, but Jesus, tell me that's not who you are. And my mom will tell you I was in the car coming home from the mall, and God said, take them out. You think I'm going to let your flesh run wild? When God said to me not to have a girlfriend or to date or to be anything like that to the point that in the Bible college they said, here's a bachelor to the rapture. There's pictures of me with my fellow students, and you've seen them before because they like to tease me. With all of them hugging and being around each other, guy and girl, you know, college photo, and me standing to the side. I remember one time they invited me to a youth group to preach. I showed up in a suit. I didn't know any different. She said to me, how in the world do you expect to relate to them? I said, I was a sinner just like them. Trust me, I'll have enough to relate to them. But I'm not here to relate to them about being a sinner. I'm here to help them relate to Jesus Christ who said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy for I am holy who came to give them a better way. Now, thank God at some point Jesus said, Joe, you could take the suit off if you want. <laughs> and I said, can I really, God? He's also given me permission now to drink caffeine. But you know why I stopped drinking it? It was because after I got saved off of all the hard drugs I was on, I felt it when I put caffeine in my body. And God said, I don't want you to feel anything like that anymore. Take it all out. I want you to get so honed into the Holy Spirit that you'll know when I'm grieved. You'll know when I'm blessed, when I'm happy. I don't want any toxicants messing with you. I wouldn't even take Advil. I didn't even take medication for a long time. I still know Pentecostal preachers that don't take any of it. If Jesus heals, he heals. If not, I go home to meet him. That's it. There's a generation of Christians many of you know not. But I shook their hands and I met them. Lester Summerall was healed from a disease at 15 years old, and God called him to preach. He said to his dad, I want to preach. He said, I'm not going to have a preacher in my house. At 15 years old, he walked down the streets and left his family never to turn back. Now, don't you sinner young kids try that. You do it only as a saint. Are you listening to me? That's not a word for sinners. That's a word for saints. He walked down that old country road of Louisiana, found a farmer. And the farmer said, what you doing, boy? He said, I come to preach. He said, I don't know nothing about that, but I've got pigs that need to be fed. And then Lester Summerall said, how about this? I'll feed them, and I'll work here, but you let me preach in your farm. You let me preach in the barn. That, my, that man died in his 80s, married to only one woman, raising millions of dollars, built the largest church in the Philippines, traveled all over the world during World War II in Korea, and that's how he started. Do you think for a moment... In a godly church, we're going to put up with your flesh if we don't put up with ours. Do you think for a moment that if our heroes in this church laid down their lives, Polycarp was killed at 86, and people were crucified upside down, read the martyrdom of Peter, or Timothy was drugged through the streets of a Roman parade, do you think we're going to put up with any flesh here? Let the dead go bury the dead. Haven't you already been to a funeral? I could see him talking to that man in ways that we would understand. Haven't you already been there? 
Have you already seen how it goes? Do you want to see something you've never seen? Do you want to see the living? Do you want to see what life and life abundance looks like? Do you want to see what it looks like when a man named Lazarus comes out of a grave? Do you want to see when I raise up cripples and tell them to walk? You've already seen funerals. Do you want to see life? Do you want to see what life looks like? Could you imagine what it would have been like that day to be that man and to see the miracles, to see the next things that happened? But our culture would have been offended at him, at Jesus. That's why I'm telling you, they don't recognize you because they don't recognize Jesus. That's why when I talk, most people don't. And I'm not saying everything I do is right. I get convicted all the time for sometimes being too nice, sometimes being too hard. God is guiding all of us. But they don't recognize you because they don't recognize a Jesus who talked like that. And then lastly, another heard it, and they were maybe trying to be better than all the rest. Maybe they saw all this kind of commotion going on and people not wanting to do it, and the person maybe wanted to make themselves look better. That's kind of how I see this. I don't know for sure. And the person said, well, Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me just go first and go back to my family and say goodbye. Let me go back and take care of this business. I'm, I'm, I'm not like this guy. I don't need a, a fancy bed to sleep on. I'm, I'm cool if I go sleep on the hills with you. And, and you know what? I, I don't need to go to a funeral. I know these, these things around our Jewish people, they take weeks and sometimes they go on forever. No, I, I mean, I'm ready to go, Jesus. Let me just say goodbye real quick because mama's going to wonder where I'm at. Family's going to wonder where I'm at. And like I said, this is not for sinners, for men to dip out on their family. But notice what Jesus says here. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Every step in Jesus' path for your life will put you away from those who are not in the call of God. Every step towards Jesus is a further step away from those not in the call of God. Are you willing to take those steps now? The man who wrote the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, was an Indian convert, was disowned by his family. And as he became homeless and walked down the roads to go start preaching the gospel of a Jesus, he barely knew, but he knew him enough to surrender everything, said, I will follow Jesus. I have decided that I will follow him. No turning back. No turning back. At this point, I don't know what else to say, but I pray that God's spirit will make it real to your heart. Because now I want to tell you how proud I am of you. Would you put up the picture, please? Our guest speaker has plenty of time to preach. Amen. But God told me to do this in each service. I have never been more proud of this church. The way you showed up, the way you came out, the way you laid down your life in the face of persecution, the way you rearranged your schedules, I have never been more proud of you as a pastor. We don't do it for me. We do it for everything I just said. Like I said, I don't know what else to tell you when it comes to Scripture. I gave you everything I could. Otherwise, I would have to teach a college course on it today. But I just wanted to say all that first. But this is a good day for me. I'm so proud of you. I got to stand next to you as many of you shouted your testimonies to a generation that didn't want to hear it. 
there was a precious sister here that's related to Jessica. And she said, I was out here last year and I was bisexual. Is she here today? Yeah, let's give it up for this sister right here. What is your name? Jalissa? I know you, but sometimes I forget names. Thank you for your patience. When you were preaching, sister, I felt like I was in heaven. Honestly. I felt that those streets disappeared. I felt that the noise was taken away. The smell of filth was gone. And I was sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb hearing a story about how good my God is. And I'm sorry that the world didn't understand what they were hearing. They were hearing something more beautiful than Dashboard, Confessional, Metallica, and everybody else that was playing. They were hearing the sounds of heaven. And I can't wait to be there with you because when we're in heaven together in the marriage supper of the Lamb and somebody from China is going to tell their testimony, someone from the Black Plague and, and the different horrors of human history, they're going to tell their testimony. I'm going to say, hold on just a minute. I got one you need to hear now. Here's someone that was living during the time of great perversion and sodomy and, 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 and all of this, and they came to know our Jesus. Let, let them tell you their testimony. I will not come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and let Iranians do all the talking. I'm not letting them do all the talking. I want to bring over Jason, and I want to say, hey, man, you got to hear this testimony of how Jason got saved in high school because uh, Jose and others did high school clubs and preached the gospel to him. You need to hear this one. I want to tell the testimonies of Michael and Sadia and and. and they didn't want to hear. A lot of them didn't, but I want to tell you, heaven does. Another thing that I was so proud of is that no one ever complained. No one ever complained. Some of you were hot. Some of you were tired. Some of you uh, decided whether or not you ever wanted to live in Chicago again after, after what we had to go through, not only with the persecution but the traffic. We literally could have carried each other faster to that location than being in that hot bus. But when you came out that bus, can you show on my Facebook page that them passing down the street? We filled up a block. When those people lined up two by two and they stretched out, it took up a city block. When the sinners saw us, they didn't know what to do with themselves. Some of them mocked us. Some of them thanked us. Some backsliders wanted to get in line with us. But you were a testimony to Jesus Christ. As much as I felt the power of God during my sister's testimony, someone that was by me could probably relate to this. Joaquin could probably relate to this. There was a, a crowd rush about two or three times out there. Did you notice it? Where we were sitting, they came, I was preaching, they came more from the street than ever before, and then they came from that bus stop. Yeah. Yes. And the crowds kept growing. And about the third crowd rush, get the moving video, please. It's on my Facebook page. Nancy, would you help them, please? Around the third crowd rush, I got that feeling of claustrophobia. I've had it in New Orleans where you can't move, you know, and everything's going on. And the Lord told me, he said, look up and see one of those flags. And I looked down the street. Look at how we, let's start this over again. And uh, make it full screen if you can, please. This is what it looked like when the team came. Oh, when the saints 
Come marching in. Oh, when the saints come marching in. Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number. Oh, when the saints go marching in. I was so proud of every one of you. And like I said, there was a time where our crowd was engulfed into their crowd, and I felt that feeling like, man, they could all kill us right now if they want to, you know? What would go wrong here? You know, all these th fears came into my mind. Sometimes people don't think I get those kinds of fears. I do because I've seen them. I've seen fights break out. I've seen people grab the Christians' crosses and run them through the streets and mock them with it. They just steal the cross from them. I've seen it happen, okay? But the Lord told me, look up. And I saw that flag waving over there. And some of y'all don't know about that, but that goes back to the days of Israel. It was called a standard. And someone was holding up that standard, and the Lord told me, the blood-stained banner is still being waved. Keep preaching. Keep preaching. And I want to tell you today, as I get ready to hand this mic over to a preacher that's going to preach to you everything from Genesis to Revelation, and we won't be in a hurry, amen? As we get ready to hear this word today, I want to just tell you I'm proud of you, and I want you to keep doing it for Jesus. Because I don't want to go to heaven alone, amen? I want to plunder hell and populate heaven. Would you stand up to your feet, stretch out your legs, warm up those hands and put them together for the man of God of faith and power for the hour, all the way from Ireland to Florida to be with us today, evangelist Adam Field. Amen. Wow, thank you so much, Pastor Joe. Thank you so much, Pastor. Just stay standing just for a moment. Just stay standing. Why don't you just stretch up your hands all across this room? If you're watching online, all around the world, if you're watching in tonight, just or this morning, just stretch, just stretch forth your hands. And if you could just ball up a fist real quick, just, just ball up a fist if you could with your hands. If you could make your knuckles white, that would be great because I, I really want this to really be a, 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 an analogy, something you can see, a metaphor, something you can, you can just, you, some of you came in today feeling like this. You, you felt like this in your soul. You felt like this in your mind. You felt like this in your life. You are just, and on three, I just want you to open up your hand, okay? One, two, three. Now open up your hands. Father, we are releasing over to you right now all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the worry, all of the stress, all of the built-up emotions. We're just releasing it over to you right now. Even the burdens of Chicago, the burdens of the lost, the burdens of everything. We want to walk in peace. Jesus, you said, my peace I give unto you. We thank you that we have peace in you, Jesus, and we receive your peace. We thank you, Lord, for all the great fruit of the last few days of outreach. We thank you for Pastor Joe and communicating about all the tremendous things that were accomplished the last few days. And in this moment, I pray, God, that you will speak right into our hearts. You'll give us encouragement. You'll give us motivation. You'll, you'll show us more revelation of your word, oh God, that will sustain us for the rest of the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So good to see you all. I just want to, in the opening here, talk about a couple of things that I want to encourage you in. 
Everything that you see here for the next few moments is not the fruit of Adam Field. It's not the gifts of Adam Field. It is not the personality of Adam Field. In fact, Adam in his own self doesn't have the discipline or the strength or the ability to do any of these things. But through the Holy Spirit, we are able to do these types of things. So what I'm showing you is not to condemn you. It's not to put religion on you. It's not to make you feel like you have to do it in a legalistic sense. But everything I'm going to show you can be possible in your life if you surrender to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can give you these types of skills, talents, and, and give you even the memory to retain these types of things. The first thing I want to show you is this little box of scripture cards. And there's around a couple hundred there. And I've got another one at home. And this is Galatians 2.16, my friends. And I memorized from the King James Version because it's easier. It's outside of your everyday language. And the these and thous really stick in your mind when you're memorizing scripture. So this is the King James Version of Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And it says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now what I want you to notice here is I'm using the first letter of every word. And for me, the Holy Spirit gave me that ability to be able to fill in the rest of the scripture by just looking at the first letter of every word. And it's amazing when you're memorizing scripture, how you're able to memorize it by writing the first letter of every word in, in the scripture. I want to encourage you in scripture memorization because it is the word of God that's going to change people's lives. Your testimony might be great, and for some it's a testimony because you exaggerate most of your story. But let me tell you something, your testimony won't save anyone's soul. You can have the most incredible testimony on the planet, but it's nothing on the story of Jesus Christ. You can talk about your testimony all day and all night, but evangelism is not an opportunity for you to talk about yourself. If you think evangelism is an opportunity for you to just go, I, I, me, me the whole time, you're just talking about yourself. You ain't no Jesus Christ. As good as you might be and as transformed as you might be, you are not the deity of Jesus Christ. Your testimony won't save anyone's soul. It will affirm the gospel, but it won't save anyone's soul. The gospel message is why we evangelize. We evangelize not to share ourselves. We evangelize to share Jesus Christ. We want to get the attention on Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not inviting people to church. That's a marketing strategy. Evangelism is inviting people to Jesus. If you go out and evangelize and you're like, hey, come to church Sunday, come to church Sunday, you're not evangelizing. You're just marketing for the church. And no church bled and died on a cross for anyone's sins. Actually, the church without Jesus is toxic. You may as well go to a bar. You might get better community there. The church is about Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not here, we're all out of here. We're wasting our time. It's all about Jesus. It's about glorifying Jesus. It's about talking about Jesus. It's about elevating Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So when we're evangelizing, we're not just telling people to come to church. And for some, that might be where you're at. Hey, come to church Sunday because you haven't grown as a disciple yet of Jesus. But when you do mature and grow up in your faith, you're going to want to start talking about Jesus more than yourself. Jesus more than your church. Jesus more than your worship. Jesus more than your programs. Jesus more than your, all the things you could offer. It's all about the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus won't share his glory with you. He won't share his glory with me. But when you 
have the word of God within you, you hide the word of God within you, and as you're talking about Jesus, it is the scripture that will break down the walls of arguments in their hearts. It won't be the cleverness of your speech. Paul said, I did not come to you with cleverness of speech. Even Paul said, I count my education, my pedigree, and my knowledge as dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, even being made conformable unto his death. Because Paul knew a reliance on Jesus can do more for the kingdom of God than a reliance on his own testimony, as a reliance on his own self. Another thing I want to show you, friends, is a day-by-day written journal. If you go on my Instagram or Facebook, you can see that I've gotten... Around 17 years of these all stacked up on there on a picture on Instagram or on Facebook. And this has been an amazing gift to me. And I go through book by book, verse by verse, through the scripture. You know, the Bible should be read in context. Picking a verse from there, picking a verse from here, and then trying to prove a doctrine is what the Catholics do. It's what the Jehovah Witnesses do. It's what the Mormons do. If you read the Bible, you read it like another book, in context. If you don't know the context of the book, then you can just make it say whatever you want it to say. Like pray to the Virgin Mary. Why would we do that? Well, the scripture says that when they ran out of wine, Jesus said, go to my mother. So that's why we're going to go to the mother. And that's why we build a whole doctrine on praying to the Virgin Mary so, so that the water can turn into wine. That, that's not how this works. You can't just pick one verse here and one verse there. You've got to go contextually through the scripture so you get a revelation of what the scripture is actually saying. That's why going through books of the Bible verse by verse is so important. If you don't like doing it that way, I want to show these, this one. I just started it this year. I'm going through the entire New Testament. I've got nearly 13 books of the New Testament covered. On one side is the text, and on the other side is the notes that I'm writing about what I'm getting from the scripture. You can buy these online. They're scripture journal books, and you can get them individually. And I love it because looking at a 66 books of the Bible can be intimidating for people that don't like to read. But when you look at the book of Galatians, that's kind of easy to read. You can get through this in 20 minutes. It's amazing how sometimes you look at 66 books in the Bible and you're thinking, I don't really want to read that just because of the size of it. This is so big. It's so massive. Whereas when you've got just the book of Galatians, it's easy for you to just sit down, read the book of Galatians, and the paper is thick enough where you can write in it. You can write your thoughts. You can write your sermons. You can write your prayers. You can write what God's speaking to you. Because all true evangelism comes out of a relationship with Jesus. If it doesn't come out of a relationship with Jesus, it's a have to. Oh, I have to do it now. I have to do this. You know you're not right with Jesus when evangelism or anything for church becomes have to's. The only way it can be generated into a want to is through your relationship with Jesus Christ. You can evangelize thousands of people and still end up in hell. How do you know that? Well, Jesus said works of iniquity is casting out demons. Jesus said, works of iniquity is preaching in his name all over the place. And then at the end of it, Jesus said, you never knew me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You never knew my heart. You never spent time with me. You never sat at my feet. It's like Mary and Martha. You got Martha doing all these things, making the dinner for Jesus. And she gets upset with Mary. Why is Mary doing nothing? Where is she at? Why can't she help me make some dinner? And you can hear in Mary this like putting on Mary, like, why aren't you doing anything? And Jesus said, Mary, 
She's doing the one thing that's needed, and that's sitting at my feet. Martha, I could flick a switch right now. I could flick my fingers right now, and there will be a hot plate of food sitting there for me to eat. I don't need your work. I don't need your works. What I want is a relationship. And if you miss relationship, your food's not going to be good enough for me. My manna is better than your bread. My manna with the Kerrygold butter on it is better than your bread with your American butter on it. Jesus could have had manna provided in a moment. She's working, doing all these things, but she's missing out on knowing Jesus. All obedience to God comes out of knowing Jesus. All obedience to God comes out of knowing Jesus. All evangelism comes out of knowing Jesus. All discipleship comes out of knowing Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, then discipleship. Replace the P with a T and that's what you've got. Paul said, I count all of my works as dung. In the Koine Greek, they didn't know how to translate that. Because it was, a, <laughs> it was a vulgar word. So they put excrement in the King James Version. But Paul said, all of my works is dung. He realized that knowing Jesus is the key. And all obedience comes out of that intimacy with him. That's where discipline comes from. Otherwise, what happens is under the... Old Testament, there were 613 laws that had to be kept. And in the New Testament, there's over 1,050 commands that need to be kept. Under the New Testament, there's even more commands than the Old Testament. Think about that. Think about that. There's more commands under the New Testament than the Old Testament. That's why Paul said in Corinthians that the letter without the Spirit killeth. Because the New Testament can't be done in your flesh. It can't be done in your strength. It's not by might. It's not by power. It is by the Spirit of God that we can do anything under the New Testament. The only way we can walk in obedience to God is not by our grit. It's not by our might. It is by the Spirit of God. All the glory that we've got, all the obedience that we have in our lives is not because of what we've done. It is because of He that is at work within me. For it is God who is at work within me. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who liveth within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. The whole New Testament is pointing towards a life of reliance on God. It's pointing towards a life of dependency on God. In the beginning, God wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve. In the middle... Of the scripture, God wanted a relationship with Adam and Eve. And in the end, God wanted a relationship with mankind. God's always wanted a relationship with us. So, so important to have these types of fruits of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is so key. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, please. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I want to read verse 6. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul later on in this chapter breaks down a little bit of his testimony. He talks about the time when he got saved. We all know it. He's on the road to Damascus. He falls off the horse. He sees Jesus. He goes to see Ananias in, in Damascus. He gets his vision back. For three years, Galatians tells us that Paul goes to Arabia. I don't know what he was doing there, but I believe he was seeking the scriptures. I believe he was making sure that the encounter with Jesus was biblical and it was accurate. And he was probably going through the scriptures, searching the scriptures to know the truth about what his encounter was like and, and what it meant to him and what it was going to be for the rest of his life. When he gets done, the rest of Galatians tells us that for 15 days he goes and spends time with Jerusalem, with Peter. And while he's in Jerusalem for 15 days, James only has enough respect to just visit with him for a short amount of time. But James really has very little time for Paul. Even Peter, while he's spending time with Paul, had very little time for him. He didn't want to, he didn't want to really address Paul. There is no ordination given to Paul. They were all listening to Paul's testimony like, wow, it's amazing. So you were a persecutor of the church. You were a murderer of Christians. Then you have this encounter with Jesus. And now you're here saying to us that you've got this big call on your life. You want to be an apostle. You want to go to the Gentiles. You, you, you talk about how there's so much of God's purposes for your life. And you can see Peter thinking to himself, I'm not sure if Paul is who he says he is. Maybe he's a spy. Maybe his conversion is just trying to get in and see our ranks and know about our ministry. You don't see any right hand of fellowship given to Paul in that moment. Listen to me carefully. The next number that you see later on in Galatians is the number 14. Because Paul could have easily walked away from Peter sucking his thumb, going, woe is me. Why is nobody affirming the call of God on my life? Why doesn't anyone see who I am? Why doesn't anyone give me recognition? Why is there no affirmation? Why am I getting ordained? Why isn't anybody speaking over me the callings that are on my life? Peter didn't even have very little time for me. Barely shook my hand. Took 15 days. James had nothing to do with me. So many people are like that in our generation. They get saved. They got a great story. And then they come into church and they just... Let the rejection get to them. They feel so sorrowful. They feel so self, full of self-pity. And some of them backslide because of it. Some of them walk away from the church because of it. But you know what was so amazing about Paul? Is he did not allow man's affirmation to determine the call on his life. He did not allow man's recognition of the call on his life to determine his obedience to God. Paul basically by his life for 14 years said, I don't care what Peter thinks of me. Peter and James might have a gossip party and talk about Paul and I'm not sure about him. Well, what's his doctrine on this? What's his scripture on that? He went on too long. I heard him preach. He was way too. What's going on? Paul's like, you know what? To hell with the opinions you have of me. I'm not going to base my calling on your recognition of me. I'm not going to base my calling based on your applause of who I am and the testimony I've got. Paul walked right out of the presence of Peter and he started preaching for 14 years. After 14 years of planting churches, 14 years casting out devils, 14 years casting out demons, Barnabas says to Paul, 
I think it would be good that you get some right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John. Maybe having them lay hands on you and ordaining you as an apostle, you probably deserve it at this point. Some of you are like a janitor that works in a hospital. Can you imagine what would happen if a janitor woke up one morning and said, I want to be a doctor. So he goes into the hospital. He looks for a doctor's cloak. He puts on the doctor's cloak. And he walks into a doctor's office that was empty. And he calls in some patients out in the waiting room. And he says, I'll see you. And they don't know because of his cloak that maybe he's a doctor. And he starts talking out garbage. And he starts writing out scripts. And he starts doing crazy stuff. Within an hour, security would be called. He would be arrested. And he could face prison terms for taking people's lives into his hands and potentially having to cause manslaughter because of his, 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 his counsel. Listen, that's how we're, we're, we're in a generation right now where we got non-denominational churches all over this country. They wake up one day and they're saying, I'm an evangelist. I'm a pastor. No, no experience, no knowledge of scripture. They've not been to legacy seminary. Not, they don't want legacy. They, they don't want seminary. They don't want Bible school. They don't want accountability. They just want to be the call that they are. I'm an evangelist. I'm a pastor. I'll start a church. I'll make it look like Starbucks and fill it up. And people will come for coffee more than the worship, more than the preaching. Or they'll come to sing karaoke on Sunday. And I'll give them a motivating message. I'm sorry, but a janitor cannot be a doctor. And you'll go to prison if you declare yourself to be something that God never called you to be. It happens out there in the world and it happens also in the church. We got a lot of people say, I'm this. No, no. If you tell me you're an evangelist or you're an apostle or you're a prophet and you've got no fruit over the course of time, your words mean nothing to me. That's how Peter treated Paul. Oh, you're an apostle? Oh, you've got a great story. Wow, your testimony's amazing. Come back in 14 years, bud, and then we'll talk about it. From the day Paul got saved to the day Paul got ordained or the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John was 17 years. 17 years! You don't walk around the place declaring yourself something. You get to know Jesus you walk with Jesus and your consistency with Jesus will show others the calling that's on your life. The consistency with Jesus will show others the calling of God on your life. You don't need a title in front of your name. Do it. The, the five-fold talk that we all have today, these titles have become idols. They become idols. Listen to me. These titles are not just ways for you to have power and influence. These titles are functions. They are functions. If you don't function as a pastor, don't call yourself one. If you don't function as an evangelist, don't expect the title to be one. What is the job description for these people? What do they even do? How can they say that they have this office, but don't do the job description of the office? If you do the job description of a janitor, you are a janitor. 
If you do the job description of a doctor, you are a doctor. It's your function that makes way for the call of God on your life. And that function's only made possible by the Holy Spirit. In the book of Judges, they were failing the people of Israel terribly. Some of them were good like Deborah, and some of them were very disappointing like Samson. And the people of Israel came together and they said, we do not want to have judges anymore rule over us. They're too inconsistent. We would much rather a king. And right before that, there was a woman who wanted a baby real bad because her sister wife was having lots of babies. And back then, women found their identity in having children. And because her sister wife was having all these kids and she wasn't having any kids, she felt low of self-esteem. She felt like nothing. And so she goes to the temple and she's crying out in the tabernacle and she's right before Eli and she's saying, God, give me a baby. And for years, she says this. And she ends one of her prayers where right, went right after when she gets the answer by saying, God, if you give me a baby, I'll give the baby back to you. Well, that was the prayer that God heard. Some of you ask for things not realizing that the way to ask God for stuff is not for your glory, not for your pleasure, not for your happiness. If you want God to hear your prayers, start talking about what brings Him glory. Start asking for things that bring Him honor. And sometimes God's no is for your protection and not your punishment. Sometimes God's delay is for your character to be developed and not God to whoop you and scourge you. God has your best interest at heart. How many people won the lottery and became crack addicts, lost their minds, blew their heads off? They got it too quick. Sometimes God's no is to pre preserve you. God's no is to protect you. Well, God keeps telling me no. Why? Because he wants to protect you. Don't ask for nothing if it's not his will. King Hezekiah got his will. And for 15 years... After praying that he would be able to live longer than when God told him he was going to die, he brings the enemy of Israel into the treasury of Jerusalem. And because of that, the enemy of Israel overcame Jerusalem after he had died. Hezekiah should have said after he was told that he was going to die, let the will of God be done. Okay, God, take me to heaven. No, he put down his heels into the, into the ground and said, God, I want to live and not die. And God said, no, it's better for you right now to come be with me. Yeah, he learned the hard way. God's will is better than yours. God's ways are better than your ways. Let me tell you something. She got a baby. She called him Samuel. Samuel, when he was a young boy, heard his name being called out. He thought it was Eli, but it was God. Eli gave him some good counsel. Eli said, listen, on the third time, I want you just to say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. I want you to say that right now. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. Look at someone right now and say, speak, Lord. I'm listening. And here's the word of the Lord to Samuel. Samuel, tell Eli, God's hand's not on him anymore. Tell the priests of Israel, God has rejected them. He's a young boy and now he's got to go preach a message to kind of like his spiritual father that the hand of God's not on him anymore. And he goes and he does it. And you'd think Eli would cast him out, but Eli left him amongst them. And Samuel became a very mighty man of God and a mighty prophet of God. And Israel came to Samuel when he was older and said, we don't want judges ruling over us. We want a king. And God said to Samuel, give them what they want and tell them all the consequences that come with the king. I'm so grateful I'm Irish. I'm from the Republic of Ireland. 
I have family members that fought so Ireland could be an independent, sovereign country. We will never take a knee to a United Kingdom monarchy, and neither should you. There is no king, there is no queen over you, but Jesus Christ. Jesus is my king. Jesus always wanted to be Israel's king. He never wanted another ruler of man to be over his people. He always wanted to be their king, but they rejected Jesus as king. I don't want Jesus to be my king. I'd rather have a preacher preach to me than read the Bible for myself. I'd rather have a teacher teach to me than study the scripture for myself. I'd rather have a prophet prophesy over me than actually seek the face of God for myself. Jesus said, if you want to have a prayer life with the Father, don't just do it at the corporate prayer meeting to get the applause from somebody and get the good tap on the back and say, that's a great prayer you prayed, brother. What a joke. What's a great prayer? Your passion, your eloquence, your sermon? All those words fell to the ground if it was done for your own glory. Jesus said, if you want to have a prayer life, go somewhere and tell no one you're there and then spend time with the Father. But don't be Facebooking it. Don't be posting it. Look at me. I've got to walk with God. What a joke. Jesus said, if you want to walk with him, you've got to go and have an intimate relationship with him. Israel got what they wanted and it didn't work out for them. You could get what you want right now. And I promise you, if it's not the will of God, it will not work out for you. It will not work out for you. You only want the will of God. Samuel anoints Saul as king. Saul was perfect in every way. Handsome, good looking, talented, anointed, full of the Holy Spirit. Walked in incredible stature. Yet he ended up getting rejected by God because he was a self-reliant king. He relied on himself, his wisdom, his pride, his arrogance. Saul was all about himself. Took an hour for him to fix his hair. Took 30 minutes to brush his teeth. He loved himself. Great husband. Wasn't like David in any way. Seemed to be a good father to his son Jonathan. Wow, he fits the religious bill. He looks great. Yet he ends up getting rejected. And his pride ended him up falling on a sword and he commits suicide. David becomes king. What made David so special? I mean, David looks like a total failure. You would honor Saul over David for morality. You would honor Saul over David for religiosity. Yet David gets a double honor. Why? Because David knew God. He didn't just know about God. He knew God. And when he sinned, he repented. He didn't hide himself from God. He didn't run from God. He didn't cover himself like Saul did. He ran into the presence of God when he was called out in sin. He fell on his face and repented of his sin. He had a heart connection to God and he walked with God. Look at Solomon. He builds a gorgeous house for himself. Builds a beautiful temple for himself. He says it's for God, but really... In Ecclesiastes, we realize he was full of himself. And then at the end of Solomon's life, what does he really accomplish? Thanks for the book of Proverbs. Thanks for Song of Solomon. Thanks for Ecclesiastes. But Solomon, it's not about how you started this race. It's about how you finished the race that matters the most. Solomon had a great start, but like the Galatians, failed miserably. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
You started this life out depending on the Spirit. Now you are trying to do what the Spirit could do in your own flesh, in your own works, in your own abilities, in your own effort. Effort. And Solomon ends up being rejected. And he has a son called Rehoboam who takes over Israel. And Rehoboam is approached by the elders of Israel. And the elders of Israel say to Rehoboam, Rehoboam, your dad was a heavy taskmaster on the people. You need to listen to Israel. Solomon taxed that way too much out of them. And you've got to just go easy on him a little bit. You've been too hard on him. His, your dad had to build his house. He had to build a temple. We understand that. But right now, Rehoboam, go a little bit easier with him. Solomon called in all the young people. Skinny jeans, tatted up, holes in the ears. Master's degrees and doctorates from liberty. And they're coming in before Rehoboam. And they said, Rehoboam, don't you listen to the elderly. Don't listen to the old. What do they know? We were young together. We were raised together. We're cool. We're trendy. We know how to make the church look like a nightclub. And we'll pack it out for you, Rehoboam. In fact, instead of allowing the militant police of Israel to put such a heavy load on Israel's work ethic, rather than using whips, they said to Rehoboam, if you want to grow your kingdom, use scorpions. Throw a scorpion at them. Pinch the daylights out of them. You'll get a lot more money out of them. Who does Rehoboam listen to? Does he listen to the elders? Oh no, Rehoboam knows better than the elders. Rehoboam knows better than everyone else. Rehoboam's not going to listen to any old person. He's going to listen to the young guys. I'll build this church off of young blood, not the old blood. That's not how the church is going to get built. And so Rehoboam, he goes with the advice and the counsel of the young people. And because of not listening to God... Rehoboam could have easily quoted his dad in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And it says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That was your dad that told you that. But Rehoboam didn't want to trust in the Lord. Didn't want to acknowledge God. He trusted elders. He trusted the people. He trusted the young people. He wanted to have all of this. He wouldn't seek God for himself. And Israel was split. Judah ended up in the south and Jeroboam ended up in the north. And here's where I'm trying to get to, my brothers and sisters. Jeroboam was a wicked king, an evil king. And Jeroboam brought wickedness into Israel. You had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Jeroboam was wicked in every way. And there was a man of God that was told by God to go and speak with Jeroboam. And the man of God goes to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. And the man of God says to the king of Israel, your days are up. Repent or judgment will come on your life. And Jeroboam extends his hand and the blood drained out of it and it seized up because he was about to order for the man of God to be thrown into prison for holding him accountable to the word of God. And instead of King Jeroboam realizing that God was on the man of God and you should listen to the man of God and shut up and listen for a moment, he cries out to the man of God and says, man of God, pray that I get use of my hand. He doesn't care about Israel. He doesn't care about the people. He liked the sound of his own voice more than the people. He wanted to rule over the people more than hear from God. 
He couldn't even pray for anyone but himself. He was so selfish. And so man of God prays to God and he gets use of his hand. And that miracle in itself should have had Jeroboam fall in his face. But miracles, signs, and wonders is not enough to convert the soul. You can see gold dust and still go to hell. Let me tell you, the man of God walked out of the courts of Jeroboam. And as he's walking out, Jeroboam says, stay with me. I want to give you some gold and some silver. The man of God was instructed by God. Don't touch his gold. Don't touch his silver. Have nothing to do with the filth that that man has in his treasury. So the man of God says, you keep your gold. All the other prophets that are employees of yours can't speak to you like I do. But I don't work for you. You're not my boss. So I'm just going to tell you what's up and walk out. Unlike the flatterers that you got around you that have been cultured to tell you what you want to hear all the time. Man of God walks out. He's strutting himself. He is full of zeal. He has got what it takes. He knows how to handle a king in the strength of God. And as he's heading home, an elder prophet comes out to meet him. And the elder prophet looks at the man of God and says, Man of God, wow, I heard about you. I'd like you to come over and eat some food with me in my house. And the man of God says, I've been instructed to go home by God. I can't have anything to do with you. And the elder prophet says to the man of God, Man of God, an angel, say an angel. An angel came to me and told me that it's okay for you, man of God, to come in and eat with me. And the man of God said, wow, well, God originally said this, but then the angel of God said that. So maybe the angel of God is a new message that I should listen to and maybe deny the older message. So I'm going to lean in on the new message from the elder prophet. After all, he's the elder prophet. I'm going to have to give him some respect. So the elder prophet has him in his home and they're eating together. And the word of the Lord comes to the elder prophet. And the word of the Lord that came out of the elder prophet's mouth was this. Man of God, you will die for your disobedience. You were told to not take of anything of this land and you will die because of it. The elder prophet immediately suffers conviction. He realizes his sin. He was a liar. He had lied. He was saying he was hearing from God. He wasn't. He was saying he was hearing from angels. He wasn't. He was using mysticism, hyper-spirituality to manipulate people to get what he wanted out of them. He didn't know the word of God. If he did, he'd know God doesn't contradict himself. So right then, the elder prophet gets the man of God up on his donkey, slaps the donkey and says, get out of here as quickly as you can. And as he is riding his donkey to get out of that area, he gets to Bethel. And when he gets to Bethel, the city called Bethel, the lion of Bethel strikes the man of God and kills him. He gets killed and the lion sits at the feet of the man of God and doesn't move. And when the elder prophet's sons go out to gather up the body of the man of God, you know what he does? He gives him his tomb and he weeps. He is weeping. He is weeping over the death of the man of God. And you could say to yourself in that story, why didn't, listen to me, why didn't the elder prophet get struck? Why didn't the elder prophet die? Why, why, why didn't he suffer the consequences? Let me tell you something right now. 
It is a harder judgment for you to see your sin affect someone else's life than your sin affect your own life. It's a worse judgment to see your sin affect someone else's life and not affect your life. That elder prophet was being judged. He watched a young man die because of his foolishness. He watched a young man die because his pride and his arrogance and his angelic lying. Be very careful right now, my friends, when angels start turning up in our generation. Look back here at the scripture that we were in, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm going to close with this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Listen, there is angels coming in the next year, and I'm speaking prophetically right now. There are angels coming. They're going to turn up in mega churches. Angels are going to turn up in a lot of churches. They're going to turn up in camp meetings. There's going to be preachers that will get tattoos of angels on them. He'll, he'll have one angel, Emma, that will come and he'll put a little tattoo. Oh, wait, that already happened. Todd Bentley was one of those guys. Let me tell you, Joseph Smith was visited by an angel. Let me tell you right now, Muhammad, the pedophile, was visited by an angel. Let me tell you something, friends. Angels that are not... So many people, they think demons have big horns. And you know what? Demons were once angels. Satan's not some ugly thing. He's a handsome thing. He's a beautiful thing. He didn't change his form when he left heaven and was struck down like lightning to earth. He wants to make himself out to be some type of uh, darkness out of a horror movie or something. When really he probably looks like a homosexual. Probably had... Some of those angels, some of those angels prior, like, I'm so pretty, look at me, I'm so handsome. Some of those angels are prior, I'm all about me, look at me. That's how demons are. They're manifesting in that way. They're lovers of themselves. A third of the angels left heaven. A third of them. And they didn't change form according to what I know. Be careful of angels, be careful of gold dust. Be careful of when teeth turn to gold. Be careful. If it's not in the book, have nothing to do with it. I want a move of God that lines up with this book. Paul said you're cursed if you preach another gospel. Be careful when people say, oh, pray in the name of Yeshua. You'll get closer to God. Foolishness. Be careful when people say, well, let's pray that the temple gets rebuilt so we can let the Jews sacrifice again. Foolishness. Let that temple stay in ruins for as long as it can be. You know why? Jesus prophesied it would be in ruins. And it's in ruins because you and I have replaced the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's right. God bless, bring peace to Jerusalem, but Jews must repent of sins. God blessed Israel, but God blessed the Irish, the Polish, the Germans at the same time. Because there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. You are one in Jesus Christ. Someone came up to me and they said, well, 
I've got some, I think I've got some Moses in my bloodline. I did a heritage.com thing. I think I got, I'm of the tribe of Levi. Woo! Oh, that must be, where's the shofar? I'm going to blow that thing. I said, I'm so far so good, brother. I'm so far so good. I'm a Gentile. You want me to prove it to you? <laughs> Timothy, Timothy was like, well, Paul, are we sure we need to go that far? Do you really need to cut that piece off me? I mean, I'm a, I'm a man now. You know, we, we can just go around the place and tell everybody I'm a, gent- I'm, a, I'm a believer. I don't need to do no circumcision to do that. The only reason Paul did that for Timothy was so that Timothy would have no hindrance in preaching the gospel. It was not to do anything with the law. It was to do with being available and accessible and having no obstacle in preaching the gospel. That's why. Because Galatians is all about speaking against that. You know, the Antioch, when they were having dinner, Paul separates himself for a moment and talks to, Je- to, to Peter because the disciples of James had come and they separated from the Gentile believers. And Paul had to rebuke Peter, the same one that just gave him a right hand of fellowship, the same one that was given ordination. He has to rebuke him. And this is post-Pentecost. Don't tell me because you speak in tongues, you don't need accountability in your life. Don't tell me that you had some angelic visitation, that you don't need someone to correct you. Let me tell you something. Paul had to correct Peter and say, Peter, you're bringing works back into the church. You're bringing Judaism back into the church. You're bringing all man's effort back into the church. You are bewitching the church. James is bewitching the church. Paul had to rebuke him. And say, Gentiles are just as much saved as Jews if they believe in Jesus Christ. You are just as much saved if you believe in Jesus Christ. You have just as much access to God as I have or anyone else if you believe in Jesus Christ. You can know God as much as anyone else if you believe in Jesus Christ. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Stand to your feet across this room. God is drawing near to us right now. I can feel and sense the presence of Jesus in this room. Father, we thank you that you are here in a very mighty way. Father, you are giving us wisdom. You are giving us knowledge. You are discipling us. You are feeding our soul. You are giving us a word from heaven right now, God. Lord, this is not talk. This has been birthed by prayer and fasting and study and hours in the place of prayer. This is not just a speech. This is not a lecture. This is not a time to have an oritate. God, we want the word of God. We need to hear from you. God, I pray right now. Lift up your hands across this room. Father, I pray right now, Lord, in an hour we need discernment, that the gift of discernment will be given to us all. That we will discern what is of the flesh and what is of the spirit. Give discerning gifts to every man and every woman that's in this house right now. Release from heaven discernment. And not discernment that's based on feelings and emotions. But discernment that's built on scriptural correctness. Scriptural correctness. Study to show thyself approved. Study to show thyself approved. Right now, Holy Spirit is giving gifts to make you disciplined in your personal time with God. The Holy Spirit's giving you gifts right now to memorize Scripture. The Holy Spirit right now is saying, you're lazy and you're telling everyone about how much you do, but you're actually lazy. And the Holy Spirit's saying, I want to get you up out of laziness right now. The Holy Spirit power is here to put discipline into your life. 
This is not religion. This is the power of the Spirit at work in my life. When they say, wow, you look very religious, you say, no, it's got nothing to do with me. Religion's all about what flesh can do. I'm all about what God can do. And it is God who is at work within me. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. And the words that I speak to you, they are life and they are spirit. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Holy Spirit, this is an open house to you. Holy Spirit, you're able to tell us whatever you want. We welcome your conviction. We welcome your correction. We welcome your challenging. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, because no one comforts us like the Holy Spirit. No one helps us like the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we are open to you. We need you. We want to commune with you. We want to talk to you. We need to be drawn again to the feet of Jesus. We need to be refreshed in the presence of Jesus. We can't do this without you, Holy Spirit. We've tried, we have failed, and today we are surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We don't want goosebumps right now. We don't want chill bumps right now, Holy Spirit. We'd rather have conviction of error in my life, in our lives. Holy Spirit, this is more than passion. This is more than charisma. What we need, Holy Spirit, is discipline. We need conviction. We need consistency. We don't need to talk about nothing. We just need to live it and let the life prove the call of God on our lives. Right now you are releasing over this house the strength of God for the evangelist to prove that they are an evangelist. Prove yourself amongst us, brothers and sisters. Don't tell us what you say you are. Show us who God has called you to be. If you're here today and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is hitting you so strong and you need prayer and you need to show others it's time for me to surrender to the Holy Spirit in areas of my life. I've been working this out in my flesh. And I need the Holy Spirit power. This is more than tongues right now. This is more than, this is more than just demonstrations and signs and wonders. This is power to live as He calls you to. This is strength to do what He's called you to. If that's you here today, I want you to leave where you're at. Come forward right now. Fall on your knees and say, Holy Spirit, I'm surrendering to you. I've tried, I failed, now I need you, Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here and you, you've been a coward with the gospel. You've been a coward with the gospel on the job. You've been a coward with the gospel at the restaurants that you are. You've been a coward with the gospel while you're doing your sports. You've been a coward with the gospel while you're doing your hobbies. You preach on the streets, but you can't even preach to your colleagues. You can't even preach to your friends. You preach on the streets, but you can't preach to your family members. You preach on the streets, but you can't preach with those that are, you're, you're, you're associating with, with, with your hobbies and things. Listen, the Holy Spirit says, hey, Peter did that. Uh, Peter was a coward. Before Pentecost, Peter didn't have what it take to defend the gospel, preach the gospel, even to a young little server. But post-Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled him, he walked out of that upper room with such authority, he lifted his voice and began to preach. Do you want authority in your words? Do you want to wait in your words? Or do you just want to be sounding brass when you talk? Do you just want to be clanging cymbals when you talk? Listen to me. Samuel preached with such authority. The Bible says that when Samuel opened his mouth, there was not one word that fell to the ground.
Samuel didn't waste his breath. When he spoke, his word had meaning, it had weight, and it had power. Do you want that? Get down here right now. Fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. I want weight to my life. I don't want to preach a YouTube clip. I don't want to preach another man's book. I want weight on my life. I want anointing on my life. I want strength in my life. I want the move of the Spirit in my life. I want consistency. I want discipline. Because I don't have it on my own. I don't have it in my flesh. I don't have it in my strength. If we're going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're going to need the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're the temple of flesh. And the temple of flesh is going to only perpetuate the life of flesh. We need the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to perpetuate the life of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this house. We thank you right now, Holy Spirit. There are gifts and impartations and power and courage and conviction and boldness and love and kindness and mercy and patience and self-control and, and all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're just, we're just receiving them all across this room right now. We're receiving them all. We love you, Jesus. Father, over every person that's down on their knees across this whole room, I thank you for each and every one of them. And I pray right now, Father, a real sweet touch of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you are our comfort. You are our comforter. We thank you, Holy Spirit. You are our helper and you help us. Lord, we need you in every area of our lives. Holy Spirit, let this not be something we talk about, but let it be something that's lived out by you at work within us. We need you right now, God. Prove yourself to be true in this moment. Change appetites in this room. If you only like eating fast food, repent and say, Holy Spirit, I want to eat healthy food. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit wants to touch every area of your life. It's not just the areas that are spiritual. The Holy Spirit also wants to touch the areas of your life. Maybe you hate salads. I hate salads. And recently I said, Holy Spirit, I pray before I eat this salad that you'll make it taste like a filet mignon. And a miracle happened. Just like, just like God turned water into wine, that salad turned into filet mignon in my mouth and I ate the whole salad. God bless the pastor. God bless the preacher. <laughs> Stand to your feet across this room right now. That's enough of that. Holy Spirit's dealt with you. It's all good. The strength of the Holy Spirit is within you. The power of the Holy Spirit's at work within you. Say, Jesus, I love you. I surrender to you. I want more of you and less of me. Now, Holy Spirit, have your way in me. Have your way in me, Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for this time together. And I, I love Chicago with all my heart. There is no other city that this Irishman loves more than Chicago. I like it more than Baltimore. I like it more than New York. I love Chicago. And I like Chicago and love Chicago, not really because of the cool buildings and that Batman was filmed here, although that is really awesome. I love Chicago because Pastor Joe Weistrostris is here. And that Metro praise is here because there is no church like the one that we're in this morning. 
(laughs) There is no church from the West Coast to the East Coast. If Jesus was going to address the city of Chicago, I think he'd look past nearly every church in this city and say, Metro Praise International, let me talk to you for a moment and put you guys on such a hill so the light could shine and say, everyone else, I got seven other churches in Revelation that you need to read about, but Metro Praise International, well done! Be strong, be courageous, be mighty, be disciplined. Be integrous, be confident. Keep going, don't shrink back. Pursue and pursue again. Hunger and get more hungry. Desire and desire more. Press forward, lean in. God's about to send revival. Revival's coming to Chicago. You know what revival looks like to me? Revival looks like to me when a church prays, sings, hears a sermon, gets full of the Holy Ghost, and then goes to Waterburger and eats burgers. No, I'm sorry about that. That's, goes to Texas Roadhouse. That's all they do. Oh, revival's over. Okay, everybody, let's go to Waffle House and get fat. That's all they do. I preach at thousands of, well, not thousands. I preach at a lot of them. What we encountered this week was revival. We met with God. We worshiped God. We heard the teachings of God. We believed the gospel. We encountered the Holy Ghost. And it didn't stay in this room. We went downtown and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preached the gospel. That's revival. Revival is when God meets us here and we go out there and meet with the needs of the people. We encountered revival in this house. And I honor the man of God, Pastor Joe, and all the pastors of this church. And I honor legacy. And I honor all of those that have served alongside us these last couple of days. It is truly my honor and my privilege to stand in this podium and to share with you things that most of you already know. Most of you, it's gone in one ear and out the other this morning. Most of you probably heard this a thousand times over. But it's just a reminder, my brothers and sisters, without God, we can do nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. Abide in me and I in him, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can he except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me beareth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Pastor Joe, is Pastor Joe here? I love you all so very much. I love you all so very much. You can close us in prayer, please and thank you. Altar workers can be up there as well. Thank you. Father, thank you for our time together. We love you so much. Until next time, Lord, until next time, may we be faithful to the work that you've called us to. We love you, Jesus. Bless everyone as they go to their homes right now. In Jesus' name, amen.